0: Drama on One, Sundays at 8pm, rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.
1: Hello and welcome to John Kelly in public. My guest is one of the true greats of stage and screen, someone whose extraordinary work is so well known to all of us. She is also someone who has campaigned tirelessly through the years on behalf of many causes concerning herself with issues of politics, injustice and human rights. And indeed, she's in Dublin now as a guest of Amnesty International. Will you please welcome Vanessa Redgrave. Vanessa, you're here as a guest of Amnesty. Can you recall how young you were when it was that you first became interested or concerned with the sorts of things that Amnesty are now interested in and and what it was that that, that set you off on this road?
2: Well, first of all, um, I listened... It must have been late 48... uh, No, it wasn't. It was early 49. I turned on the radio, the wireless in our home and we weren't allowed to just turn it on whenever we pleased. It was kind of a rule. And I turned it on and I heard a dramatized broadcast by the BBC of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it was dramatized. So they read uh, each article and then they'd do a little scene about this. And I remember very well the article against prohibiting torture because torture had been something I'd known about since I was about four and a half or five years old. And that was because when we were evacuated into the country to get away from the bombs on London, my elderly cousin had something, a little book called The Brown Book of Terror. And this had been published by a publisher called Victor Golanx, it must have been published in thirty-four, thirty-five, And in this book, there were black and white photographs, which did not reveal the face of men with bruises all over their bodies. And because I learned to read when I was very, very young, I, rea- I read that this was taking place in a concentration camp that had been opened in 1933, Dachau in Hitler's Germany. Hitler was elected to chancellor in 33, and then proceeded to totalitarian rule. So I knew from that time that there were concentration camps and there was torture. And what age were you then? I was about five. Really, that seems extraordinary. Well, I had an extraordinary cousin. You know, she was one of the first women to get to university in London at a time when most women didn't go to university. And um, she was a very progressive woman. And I, much later in 1956, when the Soviet Union invaded Hungary, I turned to my old cousin to share my feelings. And um, I left my drama training for three months and I went to work with some Hungarians in a refugee center in London and I wasn't capable of doing very much, but I sorted clothes and I held some of the refugees' hands and I couldn't speak Hungarian, I couldn't understand Hungarian, but they knew that I was really listening to them. Mm. The next was 1968, when the Soviet tanks invaded Czechoslovakia, and um, I was in France, And uh, with my friends Yves Montand, Simon Signorek, and a couple of other rather special (coughs) Frenchmen, including the guy who shot the documentary Night and Fog about Auschwitz. And I said, we must write a letter. And so we wrote a letter, signed our names to it, hailing the heroism of these young, young Russians who'd gone out into Red Square to protest the Soviet tanks going into Czechoslovakia. They all paid a very heavy price for that. Um, We hoped that our letter might help. But of course, at this time, there were a lot of people on the left, who, (laughs) although some were horrified, and thought this shouldn't have happened, the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Some were not going to speak too loudly about it, but myself and Yves Montand and Simon Signoret were among those people who usually feel that where human life and human rights are concerned, you're not concerned with your political party if you have one. Um, You're concerned with people, whoever they are, who are being abused or tortured or killed.
1: But was there, was there any way that you even knew that you could do something about this? I mean, you began there as a five-year-old being affected by something. Or did your family say, well, look, you're only, you're
2: only a kid, you know, forget about this? I don't think they knew, this. really. This was a secret? A secret no, it uh, wasn't a secret. I think, you know, they were trying to earn some money to pay for our upkeep, and um, my father worked hard to convince... The Defence Ministry, Ministry of Defence, and um, the Home Office, that to allow lunchtime performances in the theatres, to open them again, and to open up the churches for concerts, because this would increase the resistance of the people in London to have the music and have the plays, and. Um, At the time that I first learned about this, of course, it didn't mean so very much to me. I mean, I thought, yes, I do plays. Yeah. But but much, much later, when I'd been to Sarajevo, as I was in Sarajevo quite a few times during the siege, I realized that theater and music and art of all kinds is vital to a people's resistance under siege in a war.
1: In what way? What was happening there? I mean, we often hear that, I believe it, you believe it, but how does it, how does it actually work? I mean, are there bombs falling and people are having concerts and singing songs and reciting poetry? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Absolutely. so to
2: explain that, how when does that work? When the bombs work? were falling, my mother sang to me and my little baby brother in the, it's one of my first memories, in the basement, while everything was shaking. And, um, in Sarajevo, in many places I've been, during bombs falling. Mm. Um, And uh, especially, it was developed. I mean, I remember singing with children in the Lebanon very early on as bombs were falling in the Lebanon. Um, I was in the Lebanon. I wasn't in an Israeli shelter, Um, because I went to make a film there. I'd be curious
1: to know what you think of what is the real purpose, indeed point some would say, of say a poet or a painter or a playwright working away and saying this is my response to something incredibly gruesome and incredibly difficult.
2: Well poets are, I don't know take Virgil, take Euripides take Seamus Heaney if you read Virgil's The Sack of Troy you will not be reading anything very much different from what I saw in Sarajevo, or the citizens and children saw even more. If you read Euripides' Hecuba, you learn how terror inflicted by a great empire, the Greeks by then had a great empire, can turn the people they've occupied into terrorists, which is what Hecuba becomes herself. Then perhaps, like Euripides, you pay a price for having written this. Mm. Or like Václav Havel, who Amnesty gave their first ambassador of conscience award to, I think it was three years ago, wasn't it? And uh, Seamus Heaney presented the award and I read Seamus's poem, The Republic of Conscience. Well, I mean,
1: Heaney has written uh, at times about wondering himself if he's, in a sense, wasting his time writing poetry while there are big problems going on in the world. Has that ever occurred to you that maybe the theatre performing isn't enough? It isn't, isn't powerful enough. Oh, it
2: used to, but I don't, I don't feel like that anymore. This, I mean, this sounds like a question
1: for a, a university uh, essay or something. Okay, but, well, but I, I never
2: got a degree <laughs> at university, so but, maybe I won't.
1: But huh. it's, it's, it sounds like a daft <coughs> question, but you're the one to ask. What do you think the theatre is for? What is the purpose of the theatre in the light of the sort of world that we live in, and I suppose I've always lived in? It's more than entertainment, we know that.
2: Theatre is one of the last places in the world where everybody can come in and know that it's a place for them it's not specific to a religion the only specific is have you got money to come in (laughs) and that's a big specific (laughs) but putting that major obstacle aside the theater is where we can all come in and we can all have a communal experience that allows us to think, ask questions of ourselves, ask questions of the play, think what's going on in our lives. That's what great theatre can do. I just saw a fantastic piece at the National Theatre called War Horse and it tells the most extraordinary story of war. Why should it tell us that story of war, John? Well, like Vir- Virgil was writing, he said, I tell you, of war and the pity of war. It's like uh, this playwright and the director and the actors want to tell us about the pity of war. We need to seem, apparently, need to be reminded again and again and again that there are other ways of solving conflicts rather than jumping immediately for the military solution.
1: If I could ask you this, I'm going to misquote this. There, there's a line in a Woody Allen movie where someone says, um, oh, there's this devastating satirical piece about Nazis and the New Yorker. And he said, well, satire doesn't work with Nazis. You need to go down there with sticks. You know, has it ever occurred to you that the theatre, the arts, poetry, music, doesn't really frighten the bad guys very much? It's good for the rest no, you're of us. quite
2: right. It doesn't at all. And a friend of mine who's sitting next to Mr. Blair, a recent Prime Minister, asked him if he would come to see the play that was being performed in uh, the West End, uh, Guantanamo, in defence of freedom and honour. And Mr. Blair said that would be like a busman's holiday, which we all thought was a very odd reply when it, it got back to us. Because as far as we knew, Mr. Blair hadn't been inside any concentration camp, not even in Kosovo, at the time when I admired, admired his uh, support of the thousands of people who were deported. To what degree
1: did the fact that you held strong political views, whatever they may be, affect your attractiveness as, as, as a working actor? I mean, did producers think, oh, God, she believes in something, we, we don't need that hassle, we don't need that grief? We'd like a cipher here, please.
2: No, I think what producers and directors want are actors who try and understand what they're seeking for and help them arrive there. I mean, that is the, the purpose of the actor. It's not to direct and say, this is how this should be. It's to find out. And in the case of the director, you can't have a committee of directors. There should be time for discussion and questions above all. But it's the director, especially in film, especially in film. I mean, you know, whether anyone agrees or not at any given moment as to where a production is going, that's another question. I mean, I suppose people might have interfered with Picasso when he was in the midst of repainting this piece of canvas for the 17th time and somebody preferred number two and wished he'd never got as far as number eight that you know that's the way it is to have been
1: so committed to various causes and many of them at the time were unpopular and unprofitable causes to be committed to did you ever in moments of weakness and we're all entitled to moments of weakness regret that did you ever think I should just go for a quiet life here if I could no did it ever tempt you for a second just to think I wish I hadn't said that. No. No. <laughs> How difficult did it get at times, in terms of doing your job, in terms of being able to do your job, being allowed to do your job?
2: Oh, got difficult quite a few times. Um, quite a few. And then there's also the difficulty of leaving my children. Um, that was that was difficult for me and it was much more difficult for them and I think I'm really a blessed and lucky woman that my children are special people my two daughters and my son yeah I'm lucky
1: they don't hold it against you in any way for not being around or any of those things
2: I mean we all have to contend with that well they're fairly free spoken and that's great and uh, they think And that's great, and they'll share their minds with me if they think I'm wrong. I I always have, and always will, but they understand where I'm coming from. And um, same with my sister, I mean, we're an enormous family, actually. And uh, we've all got different takes at various moments, like all families do. But we're a loyal family and we're a loving family, so I think we're very lucky.
1: How, how relevant do you think, if it was relevant at all, that you came from the family you did? In terms of its position, status, the respect in which it was held and so on, in terms of the things that you later did, did it give you an exceptional confidence? Did it give you a kind of a cover that you wouldn't have got, had otherwise? Did it give you a, a privileged position to some degree in order to speak out?
2: Well, I think in the best sense of word, the word, it was very privileged because I got to work with my father. I mean, that was a fantastic privilege. It was also rather frightening. Uh, it was like having a master class every single evening when sometimes <laughs> you just like to <laughs> oh, take it easy for a minute or two. <laughs> um, but it was a privilege, a great privilege, and uh, learn from my mother, who, because of having us and everything else, um, didn't get to the places that she'd had some dreams of getting to, you know, the parts she'd like to have done and be a film star and, you know, this and that. And her career had kind of gone to nowhere. And she just set herself to do anything that was offered to her. And people realised these little bits. Oh Rachel Kempson's very good. We'll give her another little bit. Another little bit. And then it would be a a good scene. A cameo, you know. And she began to get some wonderful work.
1: You must be very proud of your father in particular, because he was the last in a line of a certain type of actor, wasn't he? The sort of you know, after, after, after that period, it seemed to be that the actor, the, the position of the actor in the theatre world changed. They became less central to the whole thing, it seems. Of course, that's just my reading of it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm surmising Oh, it.
2: listen, I think there's a lot of, you know, uh, the tide comes up. It yeah. comes higher at some times of the year and lower at some times of the year. It leaves stuff behind it. The next big seventh wave that comes in washes it all away and it starts again. Um, I think that actors have always been underpaid, absolutely always, and I am perfectly content that the very, very few who earn a colossal, extraordinary amounts in films, I'm perfectly content that they should, while they can get it. Um, and a number of them put their own money into making documentaries and independence. I do it, and I certainly don't earn anything like a colossal sum. But I put it back where it came from. I put it back in the full money. A of lot of actors now seem to do that. Oh don't yeah, they, they loads don't. yeah, loads and loads and loads do. Because um, finally, yes, there's the the money is the an issue, always. But finally. I think we act as I'm really proud of our, the people in our profession in every single country. We work our asses off to help raise money for really important things, whether it's for AIDS or cancer or hospices or you know you name it. I'd We're there doing performances. Do Do you, uh, you keep that
1: in mind? I mean, it is a very Im- it's a very important part of celebrity for people who are very famous. I mean, and, and I know one in particular who's very famous and says that he's got a microphone and when he speaks, people hear him. So it's, it's a good way oh yeah, to use that gift, true. isn't it?
2: Some people hate us for that very reason, but ordinary people don't. I mean, people who haven't got an axe to grind by when I say ordinary people. Uh, politicians will hate us. I remember, I remember when I was with some refugees from... Sarajevo, a young singer-musician and his wife and we made contact with Bono and um, Bono had done this fantastic thing, he'd established a satellite link-up with Sarajevo and he paid for a young American to go into Sarajevo and he'd got messages to the young American how to try and find the mother of my friend the young Bosnian musician-singer and, okay, so to cut that story short, the satellite link-up was made, and there's my friend's mother, Zlia's mother, being interviewed there, and Bono's set the whole thing up. I remember we were in Celtic Stadium, and, I don't know, 150,000 people went, wow. They were so pleased because their humanity hadn't been able to do what they would have liked to do, so Bonner'd done it, and in doing it, he'd done it for everybody. That's how he works, isn't it? There are so many
1: stories at the moment, Vanessa, about there are. the state of the world, and everybody's feeling a little hopeless. I think. How,
2: how, how, do, you, how do you feel? You know, you're, you're more involved in it than most people. The more involved you are, the less hopeless you realise. I mean, it's very dangerous. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm an optimist, but I'm not a pessimist either.
1: So you're saying it's the more the more involved you are, the, the more, more involved you, you are,
2: the more the more you realize the value of what people do, whether they're famous, it doesn't matter. Famous, not celebrated, small things, an individual, a community, a group, that it absolutely makes a change.
1: There are many more questions I'd like to ask you, but that seems to be the... Have perfect. I gone used up st- all the time? Not, I'm terribly sorry. Not in the slightest. I wanted to ask <laughs> you about Mission Impossible. I oh, that, that was fun. Yeah. 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 Well, let, let, <laughs> me, let yeah. me ask you about Mission Impossible. Then. That's probably the end well, of it. Well, I was so though. glad
2: to play a baddie. <laughs> and, and, the, and the fun thing was that the script indicated this was a Czechoslovak baddie. Okay, so I go to the Czech embassy, I the cultural attaché, and I say, I've got to learn a Czech accent. She tries to help me. I do my best. I go to rehearse with Tom Cruise and Brian De Palma. And at the end, Brian looks rather puzzled and says that he doesn't feel it's quite right somehow. So I said, oh, he said, more authoritative, really. So I said, "Okay, Brian, I'll go home and I'll think about that. And I went home. I thought, what's going on? What's wrong? And I thought, my golly. Brian De Palma didn't, and Tom Cruise didn't choose me to play an arms dealer because I can do good Czech accents. <laughs> he, they chose me because I'm a British arms dealer. <laughs> and an out and out bad one. <laughs> so I went back the next day and I knocked on the door of his caravan and said, well, Brian, I've been working on this and I think I know maybe what it is you're after. He said, okay, yes, what, what, what are you, what, what tell me. So I said, you're after a British arms dealer, not a Czech arms dealer. That's what you want from me. He said, hmm, you mean like Mrs. Thatcher? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the place where we should
1: end. I guess not bad. Vanessa, no,
2: thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you.
1: Thank you. but I could just remind you, ladies and gentlemen, if you do want to ask a question, just wait till the microphone gets to you and if you could identify yourself as well, please. Thank you.
2: Um, on a lighter note, Vanessa, Meryn Noonan, your uh, latest role was absolutely marvellous. How about you? And I, I'm sure you loved it, dancing in the snow and everything. Mm. And I'm just wondering, is the role in any way reflective of your character? Your own character? No, it's a character. <laughs> <laughs> But I do like dancing in the snow or anywhere.
0: Huh. Huh. Vanessa, it's, it's great to see you. Um, I fell in love with you. Dave Foley's my name from Greystones. I, I fell in love with you when I was just a, a young boy. And, of course, she is the, the, the Queen of Camelot, you know. Yeah. And you were talking about individuals earlier and the fact that they have, and you mentioned Bono and so forth. And, uh, you know, I'm here tonight because you are such a great star and a great actress and so forth. And I'm just wondering, you know, from, from an individual's point of view and to individuals who are incarcerated around the world, and when we think about in the US today, um, Leonard Peltier, who's the Native American Indian now, is 33 years mm-hmm. in jail. Uh, how do you, what's, from, from you know, a star like you, uh, you work very hard in the industry, but people come to see you and listen to what you do. I know we, we write letters and so forth. It just doesn't seem to be having the effect that's needed to get this innocent person out of jail. And I'm just wondering, do you have any comment on that?
2: Um, it's hard because it is, it's is—it's so terrible when um, anyone you know, um, and you know them to be innocent, uh, is held in without help um, or Infrequent help that doesn't appear to be successful in getting them out and getting justice for them But you see there's such a lot at stake isn't there? We've got to hold on there We've got to hold on because we can't predict that what's at the moment Hopeless is going to be hopeless next month or in six months We can't predict that Because some of the most extraordinary turns in life have happened in spite of millions of people's expectations.
0: You talk about the power of writing letters. Um, Please would you consider writing a letter to our Minister for Education. Explain the importance of giving time to drama in primary and post-primary curriculum in order to give a voice to young people.
2: Well, we've got the same problem in the UK. Exactly the same problem. And it's thanks to the individual efforts of teachers or... Principles in any given school, primary or secondary, um, as to whether the the young ones get any get any access either personally to drama and music, let alone going outside to hear it. But you know, the parents are putting on a lot of pressure because the governments are putting on the pressure. We've got to have the exam results. You've got to have the exam results. If this school doesn't come in up this table here, then it's not going to get the funds. And the parents are, you know, they're getting very nervous. And so they start saying, wait a minute, drama, drama. I mean, what's this got to do with our kids' exam results? So the parents are pushing as well. I mean, I've, I've heard them as I stand outside schools waiting for my oldest granddaughter or waiting for my younger grandchildren. I hear the parents say, well, they're going to do this play. They're going to hear learning all these songs. But that won't help them with their maths, you know.
1: Yeah, Miss Redgrave, mm-hmm. um, your career is remarkably long and it's remarkably celebrated. Boy, I'm
2: remarkably old. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And you've won so many awards and you've been so celebrated in your career and I read your autobiography recently and it's refreshingly free of ego for an actor who is so celebrated and has such a um, such an enormous public persona. Um, yet what I'd like to know is there is there any particular role that you felt that you brought more of your character, more of your personal experience to, more than any other particular role? I'm asking in direct relation to Isadora Duncan.
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sure, Isadora. Well, very close, but but that's not because she's like me. It's just because I identified very much with her. Yeah.
1: She was the one talking about destiny, wasn't it? It was her.
2: What was the quote from Isadora Duncan? Something about. Well, don't ask me because I forget these things. But it was like she wasn't. She wasn't.
1: She wasn't looking for achievement. She was looking to find her her destiny or something like that.
2: Well, what that was the last word she said, um, pretty much before she was killed in this uh, motor car. Uh, but what I loved about Isadora was that she had this very specific view of education and this very specific view about music and dance and the role of music and dance in the lives of very young children in their whole education. Um, and she put all her money into that. And uh, did a, She actually did revolutionize um, dance, specifically the art of dance. And um, and what she put into education is, it became standard until it, until, that is to say, a standard goal, I find it so hard to think how drama and music and dance have been eliminated from our schools. Well, we've got to do a lot about that. Thank you for your question. I
1: can't imagine we have time for too many more, but there is someone up the back there who is
2: I just want to ask you, please, a question about Amnesty International and um, the attitude of the Catholic Church at the moment. Um, The Church is advising people not to support amnesty, in spite of the wonderful work amnesty does all over the world, um, purely because of its attitude towards abortion. And um, I was just wondering, I mean, I have no views on it one way or the other. I just wondered how you felt about that. Uh, a lot of work has good work has been done to try and to try and overcome this internationally because there are um women in many countries who who f- feel it would be sinful to abort a child um, and as as I understand it, some good efforts have been successful towards bringing women together so that they will not, on the one hand, accuse women who've had abortions, nor will they accuse women who won't have abortions, trying to find a way to come together on these questions which really basically affect the health of women enormously and affect the, the health of the babies too.
0: Sorry. So you have what's called, I think, Darshan. You know, like, it's like the Pope is Darshan. It's, like a kind of a, it's kind of a halo, but supposedly you bring power with it. Okay? You know what I mean? It's like Anyway, I'll move on from the Pope. Um, when people like uh, yourself and Tom Payne look at Cuba, you do see Guantanamo, and you see about 300 prisoners. Now, Edmund Burke might see 11 million. You see, I'm just saying, there is a difference in perspective. Now, I think he people have the kind of power that ancient Irish seers had. If you and Pinter and a few other people went over and did one kind of Thebes bit, you know, down in in Havana, and also asked for a general election, one of those plays, within 18 months there would be a general election in Cuba. It's an old Irish tradition that you're like seers, you're actually like a kind of priesthood. You may be all that's left of a priesthood today. Well, that's all I have to say.
1: (laughs) Mary Brown. I'd like to ask you what question you would put to the prospective candidates in the American
0: presidential election.
2: I would say to each of them, because for me I think this is the priority. I'd like input from other people, but I'd like to say, will you vow to uphold habeas corpus under all conditions at all times and pledge the United States, all their services, not only the military services, to respect and uphold the Geneva Conventions. I think that's what I would go for, but it's maybe too short a it.
1: I'd like to thank you, Mr. Redgrave, for the warmth and light of the the beacon of hope you are in a world world gone mad. Uh, Myself and my associates and friends, the more we try to do in the area of social entrepreneurship and philanthropy, the less encouraged we become. And I take great heart from your thoughts and your experience that the more you do, the more hopeful you become. I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on the ongoing crushing of the people of Palestine by Zionists?
2: Well, there's just some very simple things. It was the state of Israel that occupied Palestine, not vice versa. Um, To date, there has been no real effort made by the only power in the world that can make a difference to the status of the Palestinians and a state for the Palestinians, an end to the settlements, a return to the 67 borders, except the United States. All the great powers have got a lot of interests in Israel and in Palestine. Russia, America, France. What's this quartet going on? Ah. There's big powers, a big interest in keeping a conflict going. And Annapolis, is it going to help? A lot of people I respect very much say, no, they're not going to get anywhere. But I am looking out to see if, maybe, from very unlikely quarters, as we see at the moment, some big shift might be coming. We've got to look for it. have got to assist it in whatever way we can. So I guess at the time, that's all I can say. Oh, thank you.
0: Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ia forward slash drama on one. Drama on One.